Greetings to all of you. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that have never heard any of my messages, I just briefly want to explain to you how I will be sharing this message. In 1 Peter 4.11, the Word of God says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So I will seek to speak as the oracles of God, meaning that I will seek to allow God to speak out of me by his Holy Spirit beyond any of my own tendencies so that I am carried beyond myself to speak unto you out of the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ said that the words that I speak are spirit and are life. Those words touch the innermost part of your being and bring life to those whose ears of their heart are open to hear what the Spirit of God would be saying. Those that are hungry for reality and have been tired of deceiving themselves and trusting in those that are deceived. So they are at the point where they no longer want the lying vanities of all of these things that have left their lives empty and dry. They are thirsty for God. And Jesus Christ says in his word, whoever is thirsty, let him drink freely of the water of life. And it also says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. What quenches our thirst for God is our love for those things that are not real, that pass away, that are described in the book of Jonah as lying vanities. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now I've got a little bit off topic here. I'm wanting to explain to you how I'm about to share the message. I am not preparing anything except I will be going by brief notes that I made through seeking God to lead me to a chapter almost every day of the week in which I meditate, a chapter of the Word of God, in which I meditate and write some brief notes. So I'm just going to now begin to share what God would be saying by His Holy Spirit to you as an individual to me as an individual and to the corporate body of Christ around the world for this particular hour and time. First, I will begin to share briefly from the various chapters that I meditated on this week under the leading of the Holy Spirit with the notes that I gave. And then I will choose which chapter, which I'm not even sure right now, I will share from in particular. On Monday of March the 28th, I received Luke chapter 4. Now Luke chapter 4 is about the temptations that Christ experienced in the wilderness. We're, many of us are familiar with this passage. So I briefly want to share with you the notes that I wrote on this and later we'll share more in depth as the Holy Spirit leads. So we have, first of all, 
verses 1 to, pardon me here, I just got to find my place, 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 4, I state this. The devil tempts us to doubt our identity and authority in God by seeking to get us to command something to come forth in the name of Jesus Christ to meet our basic needs. God's answer in us to these temptations is to declare that even our basic needs for physical life itself proceed out of obedience and alignment to the Word of God and not to presumptuous temptations that do not have the witness of being from God's Word to us. He tempts us to doubt our identity and authority in God, in other words, so that we do something expecting out of our own self-initiation and not realizing it's coming out of our own self-confidence. The result is there's no, re no answer. And then we begin to think, well, if God didn't come through, there must be something wrong with me. And so we adult our identity and authority in God. But when we have a deep, intimate, reciprocative relationship with God that comes out of the genuine fear of God, which has humility and honesty in it, there's not going to be that tendency to be presumptuous. There's going to be the awareness and the sensitivity to the inner speaking of the Spirit of God so that we will be aware when something is affecting us to do something in the name of God that is actually going to be a misrepresentation of the being of who God is or the name of God. Now in verse 5 to 8 concerning the temptations, that first one was about the devil saying, well, if you're the son of God, Surely you can command these stones to turn into bread after your 40-day fast in the wilderness here so you can eat. No, we don't take suggestions that come to our mind, to our heart. When we sense that they are merely hitting the surface of our mind or the soul surface of our being, we must know the inner speaking of the Spirit of God. Now in the second part, verses 5 to 8, it says, And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me. And to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. The devil is allowed to tempt us by putting before us temptations that we may not want to see. And in the case of Christ, even to the point of physically transporting his body to another place of great temptation. 
This does not mean that the devil has power over us, but that God is allowing us to be tested and tried that we might be purified. The temptation to receive the comfort and security, wealth, and pleasures of this world requires that we fall down and worship mammon and the things of this world and therein, thus we worship the devil who has been allowed at this time to be the god of this world. Our answer to this temptation is to, to declare the word of God that we are to worship God, Elohim, the Almighty's one, and only serve him. How does that happen? In our lives practically, this is how it happened to Christ, but also to us who are being brought forth into greater and greater conformity to the image of Christ as sons and daughters of God, or as sons of God, if you will, which basically means being expressions of the reality of who God is in his being. How does that happen in our lives? It happens by the subtlety of being desirous to have the security and the comforts of this world. It says in 1 John that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. We can have a motive that is out of pride, out of self-glory to be in ministry. So that we give ourselves in a very diligent way to go to a seminary or whatever, and there's nothing wrong with those things if you're led by the Lord to do it. We just need to know that we are being led by God in whatever we do. And so what happens is we become totally given to study, to writing, and we lose out in our life of prayer. And we graduate and we're looked up to But who are we really serving? Jesus Christ said many would come in my name saying, haven't we cast out devils in your name? Haven't we done all these many works? And he'll say unto them, depart from me, for I never knew you. He didn't say few, but many, many that call themselves Christians will come professing to be the followers of Christ before Christ and say, we did all of these things. But he'll say, but in your heart, you didn't have a relationship with me. Your motive was more like the Pharisees that wanted people to look up to them. You were really not worshiping me and all you did. You were worshiping yourself and therein, we're in conformity 
to the devil who is the source of all pride, self-worship, self-exaltation against the originator of all of that against God. We may just want to do God's work and become so involved in wanting to be free financially in order to, order to do God's work that we are drawn into such busyness to make money that we neglect our prayer life and our time seeking God. And the next thing you know, we are motivated more for the material things so that the things that were intentionally a means to the end which was to serve and glorify God have become the focus instead of following Christ. We've lost out on our relationship with God. Now our focus and time and energy is in these things and in ministry as well. But now it has become a focus in ministry without relationship with God because we failed to wait on God. We failed to enter into knowing God because waiting on God is, means to curb back our own self-initiations. And that comes out of the fear of God so that we're not presumptuous before God in the things that we choose to do. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, Be not hasty to honor anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou on earth. Therefore let thy words be few. When we are presumptuous, we are quick to utter words before God because we are not aware of whose presence we are in. We become desensitized. We're, it takes the fear of God and growing in the fear of God, which involves waiting on God, to grow in, a, in our identity in God. And the word waiting has the understanding of a rope being formed and twisted together. I could go into the deep meaning of it in the Hebrew. There's a gathering of identity that happens in God as we learn to be aware of who God is in our lives through prayer through laying down our tendencies to want to be busy and break the restful relationship we have with God, the Sabbath relationship we have with God of intimacy, of rest, of fellowship. Have you noticed how easy it is to panic when an unexpected circumstance happens in our life? It can happen very quickly. And we can so quickly panic and make a wrong decision. I've had it happen many times and I probably still will have, have it happen. I'm learning. I'm learning to be in the spirit. I'm learning to, to move out of an intimate relationship with God that transcends immediate surprise and concern that would cause one to panic. Rather instead, I am aware that God is in control even when there's sudden temptation to fear because of unexpected events. May we learn to be those that have the right response to the enemy that would suggest to us that we can presumptuously go and do this and do that. King David said, Lord, deliver me from presumptuous sins. Let them not have 
dominion over me. Then shall I be innocent from the great transgression. So great transgression comes first by the little foxes that spoil the vine, which we've allowed because of our own presumption to go ahead of God. Or for that matter, to be so insensitive that we fail to hear God and we fail to walk with God and fall behind. God is calling us as his people to respond right. Yes, we may wonder why the, it would seem that the devil has power over our lives. I'm sure when Christ had his body transported to another location, he could have believed, well, how come he had the power to transport my body? Well, I've had temptations happen in my life that didn't make sense where every circumstance was lining up to put me in a situation, in this case, of sexual temptation, which I didn't want in the worst way. And yet here I found myself being put in a situation where everything seemed to confirm that I was supposed to be with this person in this place alone with them. And I asked, well, Lord, how in the world is it I'm with her? There's no way I could have got out of this. I didn't want it. It exposed my heart because I saw in my heart that there was a desire to have that natural fulfillment. I didn't commit the sin. God gave me grace and victory so I didn't do any such thing. But I still saw what was in my heart and it was exposed so that I could repent. But I could have easily said, well, it was God that allowed this to happen. There's no way. My life is totally given to God. There's no way. If may, therefore, God must have allowed this. No, we need to recognize that God may allow the enemy to have power in our lives to bring circumstances into our lives. that would seem to indicate that God is in it and therefore it is right. After all, I've been living a life for years in obedience and purity to God. Surely there are all these verses in the scripture that justify that I can do this and God will still accept me. The whole thing the enemy is seeking to do in these situations is to get us to be motivated not by the Spirit of God and by the leading of the Spirit of God, but to move presumptuously because then we begin to be baited to something. And when we're baited to something, we become attached to that thing. And where there's attachment to something other than God, there is the power for the enemy to manipulate our lives into the place where we cannot let go of that attachment. And therefore, now who are we worshiping? We're not worshiping God. Even though in our mind we may be convinced we are because we're going to church and we're doing all the things that we believe are pleasing God. No, we've allowed things to enter our lives that have deceived us into a place of, of compromise. What God is seeking to do through temptations is to purify us. 
so that we come out of all compromise into a place where we are perfect and entire, wanting nothing. As the Word of God says, after you have suffered a while, He will strengthen, establish, and settle you. The suffering often involves temptations that we can't understand because it seems that even God and His power is allowing it. But in fact, it is the enemy that is being allowed of God to bring it into our lives, to test us, to see whether we will be purified more through it or fall. And if we don't repent, we can fall into the place of what would be called the great transgression. That is why King David said, Deliver me from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me, and then shall I be innocent from the great transgression. He experienced the presumption of thinking, Well, if God allowed that beautiful woman to be exposed before me, it must be of God. It's easy to convince yourself of that. It's easy to justify. And then we end up doing things that are obviously unrighteous as King David did, where he committed murder and adultery. It is easy to justify these things with scriptures. The devil uses the scripture all the time. In fact, in this temptation with Christ, what was he using? He was using the word of God. Because if there's any authority that would convince someone that you're doing God's will, it is by buying into the verses that the enemy would suggest that are out of context to the whole counsel of God in regards to whatever that temptation is that we are seeking to justify through the word of God and through circumstances that seem to be confirming it. The next temptation that is discussed is in Luke chapter 4, verse 9 to, 30, verse 13, 9 to 13. So it doesn't hurt for me to read it. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. The devil is allowed by God at times to come into our lives to tempt us, and sometimes this is to believe our authority in God originates out of us because of our own faithfulness to God, righteousness. Thus the temptation is to initiate speaking in God's name some powerful miracle to validate this heart set and mindset which is coming out of our own confidence and our own self-righteousness in our own sufficiency to be righteous before God. We can even believe the opposite, that we have no confidence in the flesh. But it can be a convincing in the mind that is the opposite in the heart. And thus, we are deceived by the convincing thoughts in our mind. 
When God is leading us, it is not temptation to validate. It is not a temptation to validate our authority in God out of our own righteousness. But it's God's leading which is also aware of our helplessness apart from God. And does not seek the deception of self-glory and presumptuous choices to glorify God. We can have a pure motive to glorify God. Or at least think we do. And yet there's the deception of self-glory and presumption. Our answer to these temptations is to declare that we will not tempt the Lord by demanding that he do some miracle through us to validate our power with God. Do I have to do something to believe that I have power with God if that suggestion is not under the leading of the Holy Spirit, but is out of presumption and the outward impressions that hit my mind and my soul? and that are not coming out of the inner witness of the Spirit of God and of letting the peace of God rule in my heart. Don't let the enemy confuse you and trouble you and convince you that you're being led by God by impressions and suggestions that come to the outward part of your soul that is not sanctified yet that you may not be aware of and of your mind. There is the inner witness of the Spirit that bears witness with the leading of God and has the peace of God. It does not drive us to convince ourselves that we have power with God by stepping out in presumption. To believe some miracle will happen through us. People can believe God is leading them to do things and put their lives in jeopardy needlessly. On the other hand, most people that have faced serious circumstances that are God's people and go into danger are not those that would be so presumptuous because they know a deep inner abiding peace and relationship with God. So it is important, brothers and sisters, for us to know that our identity and authority in God is not requiring our presumptuous initiations or those that would prod us to prove ourselves like the Pharisees that said to Christ, You know, if you're so-and-so and here you are in Nazareth or Galilee, do the things you did in the other country and did Christ try to prove it to them? No. A prophet is without honor in his own land and he doesn't have to prove it to them. He doesn't have to go and try to start doing things and then find out there is not the results so that people no longer find him credible. He is led by the Spirit of God. As Christ said, 
I only do those things that I see the Father do. And we also are only to do those things out of relationship that we perceive in the eye of our heart are pleasing to the Father and that we know and see the Father is desiring us to do. Be still and know that I am God. What did it say? What does it say concerning Israel? When they were in rebellion and always went to these other countries to find military protection, because they became in a panic, they looked like they were, looked like they were going to be finished because the enemies were surrounding them. They panicked and they went to Egypt. They panicked and they went to Syria. And what does God say? He says, "Your strength is to." Be still. Your strength is to be still, not to panic. Wait on God. I have experienced this so many times. Not major events in my life where I panic. Even this last week, I panicked. Why did my good friend change their phone number? Oh, my, something terrible must have happened. Have they been kidnapped? Why didn't I? I was so filled with panic, I couldn't stay still. I, I had to go and do something and take off right away. I couldn't get myself down to be still, to wait on God and calm down until I could just be still and know God and know what he was saying. I got a lot of growing yet to do, brothers and sisters, but I'm changing, I'm growing, and I'm hoping that what I'm sharing here will encourage you. That's what I received on Monday. It was Luke 4, and I didn't mean to preach a message on, but more or less did. I'll go on and share what I received. Oh, that wasn't, yeah, that was Luke 4. I did continue to share a bit on Luke 4 as well, because the other part is also related in some measure. And I said, but I, I won't go into that. I also, on the next day, went into Luke 6. That's where I was led next. Strangely, God led me twice in a row through the casting of lots to the book of Luke. This time it was Luke 6. There's a totally equal opportunity for any scripture or chapter to come forth when I do this. Anyhow, here we have it. So what is Luke 6 talking about? Briefly, I'm not going to go into it. I have to check it out right now myself. So I have some brief notes here on this. And I say this, God's blessing is on those that are humble and honest before God and man out of the fear of God. Those that do not have such states of being reveal that their identity and oneness is not in God, but in their own self-glory and the securities and pleasures of this world. Just have to change this thing. This note thing is screwing up a bit here before me. One sec. Um, here we go. Those that have this real relationship with God are not idolizing the law that exalts themselves with God instead of giving glory to God. How many people think, I and God, oh, we are really something. The Pharisees were that way. Oh, I, I thank God I'm not like this publican. I fast three times a week. 
I give my thighs. I, it's me and God. I'm, re I'm really something with God. He really is pleased with me. And yet they didn't realize the condition of their heart that it was not true at all. That God was displeased with them. Those that have a real relationship with God don't idolize the law and make it the focus of their life. Their delight is in their relationship with God out of which they delight to fulfill the law. The idolization of the law and God's word reveals the spirit of man's control without relationship with God. And when there's relationship with God, there isn't control. Rather, there's flexibility and understanding that releases everyone around you to total free choice and liberty. Where there's control, it's the opposite. In this chapter in Luke 7, or Luke 6, pardon me, It's the Pharisees. And it came, verse 1, And it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. And certain of the Pharisees said unto him, Why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath days? Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read so much as this what David did when he himself was in hunger, and they that were with him? How he went into the house of God and did take eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests alone. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And then he describes another Sabbath day. It came to pass also in another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, and there was a man whose right hand was withered. And we know the story. They were enraged that he healed someone again on the Sabbath. And of course, this is a long passage of scripture. But that's the main thing that is in this passage. And it's particularly strongly emphasized when it explains later on in this passage in verses 20 to 26, the Beatitudes, where it says, Blessed are ye poor. Now, I prefer reading it from Matthew 5 where it gives a little more detail. It doesn't just say you're poor, it says poor in spirit. And it says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit requires, first of all, the fear of God that drives us to the place of humility. and to the place of honesty. And the honesty drives us to humility, and the humility drives us to honesty. <clears throat> the fear of God is the recognition, the right choice to recognize God for who he is in reality, that he is holy, that his love has integrity, they will not tolerate the slightest that is contrary to love. And instead of rebelling against the consequences of his holiness that we see in all the suffering around us, rather to be convicted of our falling short of this integrity of God's love that requires judgment. That brings us to the place of honesty. It brings us to the place of humility. And that brings us to the place where we are poor in spirit.
in the sense that we recognize that it is not in our own self-sufficiency to be righteous. We recognize our guilt like the publican before God apart from the grace of God. There's humility. We do not forget what we've been saved from. Remember what it says in Peter, that he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has, been, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. As we have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we're to walk in him. We're not to forget what we were saved from and what happened when we were born again, where we saw our unworthiness before God in the light of his holiness, but we also saw the greatness of his mercy out of the fear of God that caused us to perceive the greatness of his goodness and love so that we recognize God as ultimately trustworthy with no corruption in the mercy and then the love he was showing us. It was totally trustworthy mercy and grace. <clears throat> that brings us to the place where we are always aware that apart from Christ we can do nothing. As Paul the Apostle said, we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and truth and have no confidence in the flesh. We don't boast in our righteousness in relationship with God. We're in humility before God and man, utterly aware that apart from Christ we cannot do a thing. We're aware of our helplessness for the Spirit of God to move through us and use us apart from knowing an intimate abiding relationship with God that is birthed out of the fear of God, that is birthed out of humility because that brings soft soil in which the Spirit of God can be saturated with revelation so that we do not judge according to the sight of our eyes, but by the Spirit of God. It says that of Christ himself that God would make him a quick understanding and judgment what of, out, of, out of the fear of the God. It says concerning the Messiah in Isaiah that the fear of the Lord is his treasure. It's the very treasure because it is the secret of abiding in the secret place of the Most High where the presence of God can be released in grace not only into our own lives but into those that are about us. And so we have the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that hunger now, spiritually hunger now above else because they don't love the pride of life in this world and the lust of the flesh. They've seen the emptiness of it and they fear to, be, to fall into the trap of it. I still have times when God exposes me to temptations when I don't expect it. But now I see it more from God's perspective. So it's easier to not be pulled in to that vortex that is like a black hole that would pull us in to lying vanities that would rob us and leave us empty from our relationship with God. Blessed are you that weep now. How many of us know what it is as believers to mourn and weep before God? Nowadays in the body of Christ, there's all kinds of joy and I'm all for the joy and I love to rejoice. And I rejoice a lot, but if it's not coupled with the mourning, if it's not coupled with the circumcision of the heart and with brokenness before God, there's often the counterfeit because there's pride 
because people have become up, become puffed up. And they allow sin in their midst, and they don't mourn over those that have sinned in their midst, as Paul the Apostle said that the Corinthians should have done when there was sin in their midst. They allow the presumption of leaven in people's lives by their teaching. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Where subtle teachings creep in that say we do not have to humble ourselves before God and repent of sin. That we do not have to be aware of our need of God. That claim to have authority with God and authority in God, but ignore working out our own salvation with fear and trembling so that it's God that is working in us and not our own self-righteousness. We should be those that in our prayer time know what it is to be brought to the place of weeping. In fact, I don't weep enough in prayer. I don't experience brokenness enough. I am even convicted that I need to be in that place a lot more. And out of that comes great joy. For he says here in this passage in Luke chapter 6, Verse 23, rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. Why? Because you're being persecuted. It says, when they separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast your, out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So let us not be those that are like the Laodicean church that say I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. I have great authority with God. I am godly and God wants to give me all kinds of material wealth. I'm not against God giving us material wealth. When we have a relationship with God, we, we know what it is to abound in poverty and to abound in wealth because we don't use the wealth for our own sakes and our own comforts, because we have our comfort in God and our delight in God. And so our delight is to use what God gives us to bring forth the kingdom of God and to help those that are in need. Let us not be deceived by the false teaching. For Christ said here in Luke 6, But woe unto you that are rich, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the prophets. There's two things that happen in the body of Christ. Great humiliation out of the fear of God where we get on our faces and we know what it is to mourn and to weep and to circumcise our heart and great joy and jubilation. You look at the underground church that's persecuted in China. I've seen the videos smuggled out where they're worshiping in caves and so on. You see those two things. You look at Israel, the church of Israel in the Old Testament, and what do you see? The feasts of solemnity where there's weeping and mourning, but also you see the feasts of great jubilation and joy. There's both. He gives the garments of praise to those that mourn. Let us beware of the presumption of the false teaching of the Laodicean church creeping into the body of Christ.
Now we go to Nehemiah 13, which I received. And I'm just going to mention the notes in this chapter. Nehemiah 13. It actually turned out to be Nehemiah 14 because Nehemiah 13 had mostly uh, lists of, you know, different people. And so I went on and I read Nehemiah 14. There was some great things in Nehemiah 13 about thanksgiving and worship. But here's the, the, uh, the thing I said here. It is not wrong to fear the consequences of God's judgment because of condoning evil through compromise, such as marriage. In other words, you're marrying someone that is not God's will for your life or that loves the world. Or you're seeking divorce when you shouldn't. And putting material concerns above seeking and waiting on God. On the other hand, the genuine fear of God is motivated not out of this, but it's motivated to judge and cut off all compromise out of genuine conformity of reverence and delight in the holiness of God against all corruption. This is what motivates zeal for the house of God to remove all compromise, so that the house of God is the house of prayer and meeting with God. Where we're more conscious of Christ being the head in our midst than someone running the meeting. It's not wrong to have a pastor or apostle or prophet guiding and leading the meeting. As long as we don't get to a place where they are not facilitating the moving of the Holy Spirit through the body. And where people start putting their identity more on the leader than in their relationship with Christ the head in the meeting. And one thing that brings this about is when we practice being the house of prayer and when the leadership practices it by leading the assembly to get on their faces and on their knees in humility before God and to practice it in every meeting that we come together with. That we come in great reverence before God. In awe of whose presence we're in. It's so wonderful to become sensitized to Christ the head walking in our midst because we've learned to be in our faces before God, to wait on him and to love him with all our heart and being and strength. That's all I'm going to share. Basically, Nehemiah 14 is, is basically where you see a really amazing picture of Nehemiah and his hate for the compromise that was seeking to creep in to the restoration that was happening with the temple and the walls. And God wants us to have that kind of hate so that we will not allow compromise in our lives personally and also corporately. We don't condone adultery with the world, which is loving the world. It's adultery with the world when the body of Christ allows the gods of amusement and sports into their, and they condone it, and leadership condones it in the meetings, even sometimes watching international games, thinking they're going to win the loss. This is totally wrong. 
It is very displeasing to God and the church in North America if they want to see true revival has to come to the place where they repent of worshiping the gods of amusement and idleness that have crept into the body of Christ and are robbing many of a prayer life because they're more focused on these amusements. They hardly spend any time in prayer and in the word, but they spend lots of time, a little bit of time in prayer just so you can feel like you're accepted before God. That's not the extra oil that God is looking for when he comes back for his bride. Oh yes, there's tongues in the meetings, there's God's presence and everything else, and you're satisfied with the meetings, but there's not the extra mile that you're going to gain the extra oil which is needed to be awake for the hour when Christ returns for his bride. You can fall asleep and have all of those things operating in the anointing of God's presence. But there's not the first love that wants to let go of the gods of amusement. There's compromise and adultery with the world that causes hardness of heart, out of which causes division and denominationalism and marriages that are ending in divorce. It is adultery with the world that causes adultery in relationships with husbands and wives where pride has been fed and hardness of heart where people cannot humble themselves and as it were wash one another's feet in humility and appreciation because they've not learned to break their hearts before the feet of Christ as that woman that broke her heart before the feet of Christ. Mary, out of whom Christ cast seven devils. The one who was forgiven much, loved much. May we always be aware of how much we have been forgiven and of how great God's love is towards us because we recognize the greatness of his mercy which has come forth out of recognizing who God is, out of the fear of God. And that is the recognition of the integrity of his love that requires judgment out of which springs the transcendence of that love in mercy, the perfect atoning sacrifice of God himself. Now the last passage of scripture is Luke chapter 17 and I could preach for a really long time on this chapter. It is a great blessing in my life this chapter I remember meditating on it many years ago and I never forgot it and yet I will only briefly touch on it here but I do believe that this is a good passage to read so you get the overall picture of what is being discussed here and because it is the theme passage I will read this chapter and share a bit on it then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he cast into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive it. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamine tree, 
Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, When he is come from the field, go and sit down to me? And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. And it came to pass, as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And he entered into a certain village, and there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering and said, Were there not, were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here and lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you, and he said unto the disciples, The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them, for as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in that day. But first must he suffer many things, and be rejected of this generation. And as it was said in the days of Noah, so shall, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife? 
Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. In the first part of this passage, I really want to focus on with more time. And that's verses 1 to 10. Christ is describing here people that are offended by other believers. All of us have experienced this, being offended because someone has hurt us in some way. They may have not been even aware of it. We are to go to them and to make them aware of we're offended. That is clear. For how could they then come to us and ask for forgiveness? If we didn't go to them first and make them aware, as the Word of God tells us we are. And of course, as you know, if we go to them and they refuse to hear us, and they refuse to repent, then we're to bring someone else and see if that might change their heart. And then if they still refuse it, it's to be heard before the body of Christ. And if they're still filled with a spirit of pride and stubbornness where they cannot humble themselves, they are to be recognized as no different than people that are not saved and treated in the same way. Because maybe they weren't really converted in the first place because the evidence of true conversion is that pride is broken and there is humility. There's humility to go to someone and ask for forgiveness. There's humility to admit our faults and our wrongs so that we can grow and be transformed into the image of Christ. That's first before God and then before others. That is how we were saved. There are those that are very convinced that they're born again of the Spirit because they prayed the sinner's prayer, but they really didn't pray it out of the awareness of who God is and His holiness and of their utter need for His mercy. Intellectual persuasion is not genuine faith. Genuine faith is the persuasion of the heart. In fact, the word believe is from the Greek word pistis and the word faith is also from that word and it basically means moral persuasion in who God is and you can't be morally persuaded in who God is if you have not come to believe in God from the heart in the in the in who he really is which requires the fear of God it requires a choice to believe that God is ultimately trustworthy and you can only perceive that God is ultimately trustworthy if he has an integrity in his love that will not tolerate what is contrary to his love which is corrupt and that is ultimate perfect love that is so great that it can out of that foundation which is holiness spring forth in ultimate creativity which is expressed ultimately in God himself absorbing judgment upon himself 
so that he can provide us mercy because the perfection of his love is so great that he could actually take judgment upon himself for us and still be God and still rise from the dead and still not have his union with God broken and it wasn't broken on the cross. Yes, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he experienced the judgment of God, the forsaking of God's presence, but his spirit was in total faith, selfless trust in God. His spirit was pure through that judgment. He was still trusting in the Father's and that was evident in the fact that he said, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And of course, it says in Romans 1, 4, by the, that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. By the resurrection from the dead, by, according to the spirit of holiness. Christ's spirit was totally pure, was totally holy. It did not condone sin on the cross. He didn't have a nature of Satan that was put on him. He didn't become Satan. That's a lie. That is saying that he no longer was God. That is a deception. It is a false teaching. It is not taught in Scripture. Nor does the Scripture teach that Christ was tormented in hell. He took his judgment in his body on the cross. It was God that conquered death in the flesh. When he was released from that, he was in the Spirit. And he preached to the Spirit in hell, not in torment, but releasing them from hell. These are false teachings that tend to deny that God conquered the death in the flesh. But I don't want to get off on a tangent here. What I want to point out is this. I wouldn't be wanting to... There may be people that believe God was still God through all that. I wouldn't want to argue with them over my over that if that's what they really believe. The issue is, is that God conquered death in the flesh and that such teachings are not supported by the word of God and do not line up with the word of God. But here's the thing I want to point out with this here passage of scripture. God in this situation is showing how great our mercy should be to those that sin against us. And the apostles find this so overwhelming that they say, increase our faith, our moral persuasion. Our belief or trust from the heart in who you are so that we can actually be this way. What does the Lord say? He describes to them what genuine faith is. And I want to point out that in 1 John it makes it clear that this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Faith involves the seed of the divine nature in this way. When we've really come to the place like the prodigal where we've seen the greatness of God's mercy, that he's ultimately trustworthy out of the fear of God, our spirit was like a clenched fish before we're saved. 
our soul is too. We open up and surrender like an open hand, crying like the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Like the seed, the shell of our pride is broken. The pride is broken. Our hand opens up from that clenched state of hardness like a seed. And then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with that hand like another open hand against that open hand, forming the hand of prayer. Now that open hand cannot close, which represents our faith and trust with God. Because the Spirit of God is abiding with our spirit in that state of selfless trust like an open hand. And we have a new nature which is born of God. And this new nature is what overcomes the world. Now, how does that happen? Well, Christ is describing this faith right here in the next passage. What genuine faith is like is described from verses 6 to 10. It's, he says, if you had faith as or like a grain of mustard seed. This faith is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed is full of life, but it's very insignificant and small. This represents having great humility in the light of who God is. When we see God for who he is in our lives and how great and awesome he is, it brings us to a place of utter reverence and awe of who he is, a place of total humility and honesty. Honesty driving us to humility and humility driving us to honesty. A mustard seed can be in the worst drought conditions. It can even be under a stone and it will persevere with the life that is in it to burst through that stone or to bring forth life in the midst of a very desert-like condition. Remember Christ holding himself in a state of faith in trust in the Father, experiencing the forsaking of the Father, and yet trusting the Father. As the Word of God says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yes, though Christ was slain, allowed to be slain of the Father, he still trusted in the Father. He was in that state of selfless trust. That divine nature was still there in him, and he was raised from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness because his Spirit was in that state of selfless trust, which is holy, that did not condone or become a fist of rebellion rebellion against God because of what he was suffering. This mustard seed perseveres. And this kind of faith is a faith that involves great humility. It is small. It is not something that shows off. It is not something that is puffed up. It is so real because it is abiding. It is perceiving the ultimate source of reality. It is recognizing who God is, who is the I am the, that I am, the very source of reality. And he goes on to describe this face, and he says it's like this. It's like a servant plowing and feeding cattle and saying, pardon me, I should go, uh, say, be, okay, He's, he also says, be thou, if you have this kind of faith, you can say, be thou plucked up by the rope, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. I don't want to miss that part. So when we have this faith, 
that is like this, that's filled with life, that doesn't seek its own glory, that isn't puffed up, whose identity is in God and God alone, and not in what people think. There's that authority. We have the authority to be sons of God and to speak with authority in his name. But here he goes on, he says this, but which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not, so likewise ye. When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. Do you see the reverence and the humility before the master here? Total reverence and humility. An awareness of our worthiness like the woman at Christ's feet that was so thankful she was forgiven. A total persuasion in who God is and who his master is that he delights to say he's unprofitable and that he's only done what he should do and he would do more. He doesn't want to just do what is his duty to do. He wants to do more. He's in love with his master. He greatly respects him. He counts it a privilege to endure hardship and humility for his master. That's genuine faith. That will endure someone that sins against you and says that they repent. Do you forgive them if they don't repent? No. You do the initiation towards them to say, I forgive you, even if they haven't repented, expecting the response of repentance. In other words, you are laying your life down that they might respond in repentance. That's why Christ said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He initiated the love to stand in the gap well, more than that on the cross, to uh, be a substitute for sin. Out of love, we choose to forgive, believing that they will respond and say, I repent. If they don't respond, whether it is in God's hands and they will receive judgment. But here's what I want to say here about this is that in our relationships, if we've really been born of, again of the Spirit and we have the genuine seed of faith, God will surely have, we will have the attitude to forgive. We will have such a faith relationship in God that we can believe for that person to change. We can endure with them because we recognize how great God's mercy is to us. We see beyond their faults. We choose to stand in the gap and suffer their offenses until there's breakthrough. Until, and we can, we can actually say, I'm commanding this root in their lives to be cast out of them and cast into the sea of God's forgetfulness. That is what God is seeking. Now, I didn't read my notes on this. I don't know, maybe in conclusion I'll just do that. I'm going to finish the message pretty soon now. 
It takes genuine faith to keep genuinely forgiving someone that repeatedly offends you and then says they repent and ask for, ask for forgiveness. Christ describes this faith to be like a grain of mustard seed that is very small and yet full of life to persevere and burst through the hardest rock and driest conditions with light. He then explains that this mustard seed kind of faith is like a faithful servant that is very humble and thankful towards God, despite the fact that life is humbling and very difficult. Genuine faith is not puffed up because it is birthed out of the genuine fear of God, which recognizes the greatness of God's goodness and mercy and of one's unworthiness to have received it so that they are filled with thankfulness despite the worst conditions to have faith in the ultimate trustworthiness of God as the ultimate good. This keeps releasing the grace of God therein. Now, the last part of this passage, I'm just going to read the notes Verses 11 to 37, Christ reveals that the kingdom of God will come in relation to where our heart is with God. It doesn't come by observation, he said. Those that are truly in love with God in their heart are focused on God with their life and energy through prayer and good works out of abiding in God that takes priority over the cares of this world. The last verse here really is the key where Christ says, concerning the rapture, it's like this. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. <clears throat> what he's saying here is that if I have a heart relationship with God, where I'm in love with God and I've not allowed the things of this life to deceive me into my own ways and identity, which is not in God now, but more in the world. If my identity is more in the world than in God, then I'm going to be attracted, like the eagles, to the carcass of death. But if my heart relationship is not in the lying vanities of this world, but is in a true reciprocative love relationship with God and with my brothers and sisters, then I am going to be drawn to the opposite. I will be drawn to where the family in heaven is, not where the body that is filled with death is. That is what Christ is saying. And the secret to it is our faith. And our faith is the new divine nature that abides in us by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit with our soul and spirit. And it is that reciprocative, abiding relationship where as we receive Christ, we walk in him, that gives us the victory that overcomes the world and gives us the authority to walk in the greater works and in the power of God to say, to this sycamore tree. Be thou pulled up by the roots out of this person's life and cast into the sea of forgetfulness. May we persevere, brothers and sisters, to be those that are part of the bride of Christ, those that have the extra oil, that are not in love with this world. God bless you for listening to this message. May it be truly incarnated in your lives. I look forward to continuing to serve Christ and you through Christ. God bless you all.